preaching of God's Word then is found in Ezra and chapter 3. Last week we considered the opening seven verses, the significance of the seventh month, this festival month of the various feasts that were remembered, and particularly you remember uh, that which was recorded of the burnt offerings, the altar being set up so that the offerings could be offered. And now we turn to verses 8 through 13. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. They sing together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because He is good, for His mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice. Many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. These verses for the preaching of God's Word this evening, it's worthy to set before us this question, what did the Israelites return to Jerusalem to do? What is it that the Lord called them to do? What is it that they set their hands to do? And of course, it's already been mentioned, but the passage makes it plain. Notice, as it says in verse 8, they came to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. They had come not to establish their own houses, not to establish their own heritage, though there were certainly aspects of those promised inheritances that were before them, but their primary calling was to set forward the work of the house of Jehovah. It's significant. It's significant because it oriented all that they were to be about. And in fact, when in a few years' time, the work should find some lull and slowing down, and the people sort of go back to their houses, and they live in sealed houses and beautiful houses, but the house of God was still imperfect, and the wall of Jerusalem was not fully established. There's reproof given not because they took care of their necessities, but because they had lost their focus and drifted away from the solitary focus for which they had come and to which they had returned to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Context reminds us that they had already established the altar of God and had set up the various sacrifices being Uh, ordered according to the Word of God. Notice in verse 2, it speaks of the offering of burnt offerings thereon as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the Scriptures guiding the sacrifices. And notice the worship that is uh, put forth by the Levites is, verse 10, after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. All of what's going on, all of the activities, is in accordance to the Word of God. God's Word is governing, directing, encouraging, and helping along this work. And brethren, here's something to remember. 
when there is true God-sent reformation, there will be a fixation upon the Word of God. That these two are ever joined together. That when you see things taking place, and they're, as it were, uh, going astray from God's Word, even though it may be very religious things that they're doing, if it's not in accordance to God's Word, it's not God-given reformation. God's Word is governing all and helping forward all. Now notice the text. It mentions the second year had come in verse 8. And the men now had a mind to work. A number of leading men and their families are mentioned. You have Joshua, the son of Jozadak. That's the Joshua who is the high priest. You have Zerubbabel, the chief ruler, and a number of others. In verse 9, you have Joshua and Cadmiel. These are Levites. So you have two Joshuas, two different Joshuas mentioned. You have the sons of Asaph as well, and others mentioned. So these men have come together, some who are priests, some who are rulers, some who are Levites, some who are appointed singers, and they're all now focused on the work before them. And their primary work is to establish the foundation of the temple of God and to reinstitute all of the ceremonies that God had linked with the temple. And so it's not surprising to us that we see instruments introduced. As one has said, instruments are the soundtrack of the sacrifices. Instruments are established for the Levites to play while the sacrifices are being uh, offered. And so you see this taking place. There's the Levites. What are they doing? They're taking up the instruments that are in accordance to God's institution under David. And they're playing now as these sacrifices are being offered. There's an eruption of praise and it focuses on the Lord giving thanks to Him. Verse 11, because He is good. And oh, what comfort it was for them to remember His mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And this, of course, elicits shouts of joy and cries of weeping. When they see the shape of the foundation established, that it was not as great as the former temple, though it reached the same dimensions, yet it didn't have the same grandeur that Solomon's temple had. And so you have all of this before us, reminding us that in the rebuilding of the Lord's house, the Lord's people are seeking the promotion of the Lord's praise. This is helpful for us to think through. We don't have, we don't desire, we don't seek Old Testament reformation. We seek biblical reformation according to God's Word today. And just as those under Ezra were under the Word of God that was governing them, so we in our day are under the Word of God governing us. The shadows have passed. The shadows are no more. We have no place for this thought of this is what we need. We need you know, ceremonies and incense and ephods and uh, uh, instruments and other such things because we realize that's all linked to the old ceremonies and the covenant that was the old covenant which was pointing to the Christ that has come. But that said, we may glean tremendous help as we see our forefathers in the faith in their time, in their era, setting forth the praise of God according to His ordinances. Which challenges you and me today to say, you know, we pray things as Christ taught us, Thy kingdom come. What we mean by that, of course, is we desire to see Your reign flourish in our lives, in our families, our marriages, our places of work, in our church, and so on. We don't just mean something like, you know, make us more religious, cause culture to become more religiously inclined. We have no interest in that because there are hundreds of false religions and there are far more departures within the true religion of Christianity away from the Word of God. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, what we're asking is, O Christ the King, Order all things according to your will. What does that mean? If it doesn't mean 
Order all things according to your word. For his word tells us his will. It is the revelation of his commandments and desires and purpose for the church. And under the old covenant, we see that taking place. The law of Moses, what is that? Well, that's a way of talking about the Bible. The ordinances of David, what is that? That's a way of talking about the Bible. It'd be like talking about the epistles of Paul or the epistles of Peter. It's pointing out concretely that they aren't setting their work forward according to their religious interests or according to their enthusiasm and excitement, that they've not just been worked up into a religious frenzy. Oh, there's been spiritual work. It's of such a nature as drives them gladly to say, what do the Scriptures say? And why would they ask that? Because they've been humbled. We sang earlier from Psalm 51 that the Lord delights in a broken and a contrite heart. And when you and I are given broken and contrite hearts, what happens but that we humble ourselves and we hold fast to God's Word? Well, the people of God, as a comprehensive people, have been humbled. They've been broken and brought to contrition. And now they're brought back. And it's as if God has disciplined His children and is now bringing them back. And they've learned the lesson. Oh, we're not going to add inventions. We're not going to do as our forefathers did and say, how do they worship Baal? Let's incorporate that. How do they worship this God? Let's incorporate that. No, we're going to set up these things according to the Scriptures that God has given. This is the mark of all such praise. And brethren, you notice the connection as we read in Ephesians, that as they labored to build the physical temple, which was an emblem and a promise and a testimony of God's presence with them, we seek to see the temple of God built up among God's people, which are the temple of God, which are to be governed by the Word of God and so forth, remembering that we too are seeking to show forth God's praises. Well, notice a few things that by God's grace would give us help. Firstly, the purpose of the house they build. What is the purpose of this house? Well, you'll notice in verse 8, as indicated, it's to set forth the work of the house of the Lord. It's actually a fairly domestic and uh, very easy term, the house of the Lord. If you are going down and you're bringing a stranger along with you, someone you've just met, and you're bringing them to your house, you're looking and you say, here we are, here's my house, as you pull up and Go in. Well, what is that? That's where you live. That's where your home is established. That's the center, as it were, of all you're doing. Think of this expression, so simple that it is, that they set for the work of the house of Jehovah. It's the place where God dwells. It's the place where God is. Now, we no longer speak of buildings as being the house of the Lord. We deplore the thought when people talk in churches and say, oh, we're going to go into the sanctuary. There's no such thing as a sanctuary anymore. This space isn't a sanctuary. No church has a sanctuary anymore because that is a shadow that's been taken away. We gather in this room as the sanctuary. God's people are the temple of God who show forth God's praises. We don't speak of sanctuaries anymore, but they did have a sanctuary, a place, a holy place according to God's will that was set apart for a season whereby His praises would be shown forth. Now, what's important for us to consider is that they're setting forth both the work of the house of the Lord in its construction... So they're laying the foundation, they'll erect the walls, they'll put on the ceiling, they'll divide the holy from the most holy place, and all of these things will take place. So they're setting forth the work of the house in its construction, but also in its function. Do you see that? What are they doing? Well, they not just establish the foundation, but then they set forth the Levites to go about the work of praise. This will be significant, as we'll see in a moment. This reminds us of what the purpose of this house is. It's mentioned in multiple places in Scripture. You can see it 
Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 6, elsewhere in Second Samuel 7, and in First Chronicles 22, but for the sake of simplicity, notice Second Chronicles and chapter 6. There at verses 7 through 9, we read as follows. Now, it was in the heart of David my father, this is Solomon speaking, to build an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the, the Lord said to David my father, for as much as it was in thine heart to build an house for my name, thou didst well in that it was in thine heart. Notwithstanding, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son, which shall come forth out of the loins, thy loins, he shall build the house for my name. Now you see it mentioned three times. What's the house for? It's for my name. It is the revelation of God. And oh, that we had time to unpack all of what the temple held forth in revealing God, both as it was a holy place, both as it was a perfect place, both as it held forth in various images the things of God and how God dwells with His people. But what's being said is, the temple is that which makes known who God is. And there's tremendous insight here. There are great studies that we can go through as we think of the tabernacle, the precursor of the temple and all of the parts and instruments and things, furniture of it, and how that's translated to the temple and a greater magnitude and scale and so forth. But fundamentally, what the temple did was it broadcast the name of God. It was holding forth, as it were, a testimony of God Himself. The temple set forth the gracious and holy revelation of God. And so we think in these terms, as the commandment says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Well, the temple didn't take His name in vain. The temple was this weighty testimony of the glory and the glorious grace of God. We seek to show forth the praises of God. Well, the temple in its construction and its work within it did so. So how did it show forth God's holiness? Well, think of who was permitted in the temple. You and I wouldn't have had permission to enter in the temple. You had to have a pedigree of the priesthood to enter the temple. Why? Because this is the place where God most intimately displayed something of His glory. And even if you and I were priests, we would not have had access to the most holy place of the temple except we were the high priest. One person, think of that for a moment, one person in all of Israel permitted to enter into the most holy place. And the various ceremonies and the various instruments and furniture, all testifying through its gold and precious stones and other things, the tapestry that stood there as the veil, oh, the intrinsic beauty, and what is it crying out? But the one who inhabits this place is glorious. He is holy. Now you and I know this. The temple is, in one sense, just a building. But by God's determination, it was to magnify and manifest Himself. And so it's interesting when we have Revelation, the book of Revelation open to us, we see heaven likened to the temple of God. We have dimensions in a magnitude that exceeds any earthly building, and yet in the same dimensions of the temple. And we see Jerusalem is a perfect cube, like the whole, most holy place of the temple. We see incense arising. We see uh, sacrifices provided like was done in the temple. What's being said? The temple is like a little model of God's most holy place in heaven. This is the wonder of these things that the temple is given not just as some picture, as it were, of things to come, but it's actually given, as it were, as a little model of heaven itself of the glory of the habitation of God in heaven. Now the temple likewise showed forth God's name of grace. 
It's a delightful study to consider when God proclaimed the name of the Lord to Moses that he emphasizes his grace. And brethren, when we look at the temple, we're right to be struck by the holiness of that place, the beauty of that place. Such was it that it astounds us to think of. But the function of the temple was a testimony of the Lord's grace. So what takes place in the temple? Well, you have the priests at work. They're interceding. They're lighting these fires. They're sacrificing these things. They're offering up the blood of these sacrificial animals. The high priest is entering in with blood of cleansing into the most holy place. In the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant on the top of the most holy place, or of the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, is the mercy seat, the propitious seat, where mercy was most clearly shown, the angels bowing themselves, as it were, to the invisible God, not seen with eyes, all testifying at both one and the same time, this God is most holy, but this God is most gracious. One in the same building, testifying of both of these things. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, were we to have access to all of the homes around us and to see. Because we realize if we could see in someone's house, we'd actually learn a little bit about them. It tells us about them. Are they orderly people? Are they disorderly? Are they clean people? Are they dirty people? Are they worldly people? Are they religious people? We can tell that by just going into a house. You know, sometimes perhaps you've looked online at houses for sale and you click through the pictures and they've not been staged as it were and people have their personal things up and you know what kind of people live there by the posters and the decorations and other things that are up there. Their whole wall is filled with filthy things and you say, well, whatever else is true of that building, the people that live there are a filthy people. Perhaps you see something that's a clue to you, like a testimony of Scripture that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord on some plaque on the wall. And you say, well, whatever else is true, they have some reverence for God. You can tell a lot by venturing in to a house. Not perfectly, but you can tell a lot. And likewise, as we look at the temple, the house of God, we can tell a lot by God, of God. Because, remember this, the temple is constructed according to His guidance. Everything placed in the temple is by God's appointment, by God's determination. And all of the activities in the temple are by God's appointment. So parents will be faced with this eventually. Some parents know what it is to say to their children, well, I know that so-and-so does that, but what follows? But in my house, we don't talk like that. But in my house, we don't behave that way. But in our house, this is what goes on. Brethren, that tells the world something about who we are, the way that we behave, what we tolerate, what we cultivate in our house. What is going on in God's house? The sacrifices, the ceremonies, all testifying of God seeking us, of God pursuing us, of God establishing peace for us through all of these functions that He is providing for us. You take everything in the temple and you could derive rich spiritual blessings. There's the lampstand, and what is it? But it's always filled with oil, always burning. And it testifies of God giving light to us and making us to be His light by His grace. We see of the table of showbread, and what does it tell us? But that He provides for our needs. He is the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the blood that is brought in not only into the holy place, but into the most holy place. And we remember and reflect upon the Lamb of God that was slain. Who was slain? The Lamb of God. The temple is testifying to His people and broadcasting beyond saying, this God is both most holy and most gracious. Now, brethren, no building 
does this any longer. Believe it or not, there are some Christians who expect an earthly temple to be reconstructed. Could you imagine the absolute contradiction that would be if the sacrifices and ceremonies were reinstituted? It would be so much as to say, Christ hasn't come. It would be so much as to say, we don't have the substance. We just need the shadows. Christians are misguided by misunderstanding God's Word when they get excited about thoughts that maybe the temple will be rebuilt. Brethren, there's no such building now or ever that shall be which is to hold forth these things again. Here's the reason. Because the temple is now realized in the people of God. This has always been true to one degree or another, but it's most explicitly made known as we read, for instance, in Ephesians 2, that we are built together as a habitation of God through the Spirit. But notice also, not only Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, but notice in 1 Peter and chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, Ye also as lively stones, that means living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You see as well in verse 9, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You can see undertones of what Paul has written in Ephesians 2. But notice, you, people of God, are not the stones which have no life. You are living stones. You're the people of God, the house of God. Notice Hebrews chapter 3, and there at verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So brethren, here's the connection for us today. We don't look for the rebuilding of an earthly building. We look for the building up of God's temple in the people of the church. Reform comes to us as a people, bringing us to embrace His promises, but also the purpose is that we would show forth the name of God. We are the people for His name. This is why Christ says, among other reasons, in Matthew's Gospel, that we are to let our light so shine before men that they seeing our good works would do what? Give glory to our Father which is in heaven. We're showing forth His praise. As the temple testified of God's holiness, so are we by our words and actions to testify of His holiness. But likewise, as the temple held forth Christ, so are we to hold forth Christ. Thus the purpose of the house. Secondly, notice the praise of this house. We've seen the temple existed for praise. You can see this even as the foundation is set. Joshua, verse 9, and his sons and his brethren, this is the Levite Joshua, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. It's not that the whole building is even constructed, but they say, now that the foundation is set, let us be about the function of this temple to praise God. Now brethren, such praise of God in all ages is always only to be set up according to His Word. It's amazing how today people get in a religious frenzy and they think, well, we're going to do whatever we can to praise God. Think of that kind of language, whatever we can to praise God. It's not whatever we can to praise God. It's whatever He's commanded 
to praise God. That's what we're to do. Because only God can tell us how we're to praise Him. We are to come in some religious frenzy and say, oh, I feel like doing this in God's praise. You know, pastor, can I do this? Or why don't we do this? Or can we go about doing that? You know, I see a bunch of churches doing these things. Let's do those things as well. People will get it and carry on. Well, whose praise are we trying to set forth? Man's praise with all of his clever activities, with all of his specialization, with all of his expertise? Or are we seeking to set forth God's praise? which is according only to His Word. Notice verse 10, that all of these instruments are set up after the ordinance of David. This is instructive. All worship in God's house is to be governed by His explicit Word. This is true of the temple, and it's true of the temple today. The worship of God is to be according to to his word. Now, this is particularly instructive for us today because we should ask the question when do we see the introduction of instruments in God's worship? You know, the way that some talk, you would think that instruments have always been at work in God's worship, but the simple fact is it's not the case. The beginning of instruments in God's worship is under David commanding the Levites and the priests, period to play certain instruments in association with the temple sacrifices. Now think of that for a moment. Instruments in God's worship belong to the priests and Levites. They are, as noted, the soundtrack of the sacrifices. Could you imagine your thought if I said, hey, you know, we're we're advancing, we're progressing, we're getting in touch with the Bible and with ideas of biblical worship, and then I were to open this little door and pull out a sheep, unsheath a knife, and slice its neck, and pour out the blood and say, let me sprinkle you with blood in the name of God. And you say, wait a second, you know, you can't do that. And I'd say, well, why? You know, the Bible tells me to do it. I see it here and there and everywhere else you would instantly know, no, 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 you're not to do that because that was a shadow pointing to the coming of Christ. Christ has died. The blood is shed. If I were next Lord's Day to be dressed in an ephod and had a special headdress on and had incense wafting from a chain and uh, uh, instrument in my hand, you look at me with disgust and you would say, God forbid that we would take up again incense which was linked to the Old Covenant way of worship and anticipation. But open your eyes to this. Instruments in the Bible only accompany the Levites and priests. They were functions of the priestly office. Here's the reality. In the sight of God, the use of instruments in God's worship today is as much a slap in the face as if we were to start sacrificing sheep. Now, that's firm. That's heavy. That's weighty. But brethren, the Bible indicates that instruments in God's public worship is isolated to the Old Covenant sacrificial system. This is why historically, Presbyterians and Baptists of an earlier age forbid use of instruments. This is why a Southern Presbyterian, Arl Dabney, who has also dabbled in architecture, so constructed buildings in his best estimation as to keep out organs. Because he realized that these instruments that so uh, elicit interest from men is a violation of the guidance of God. Just to show you something, notice in Second Chronicles in chapter eight, you see this explicitly noted. Second Chronicles in chapter eight, there at verse fourteen, and he appointed, according to the order of David his father, the courses of the priests to their service, the Levites to their charges, to praise and minister before the priests, as the duty of every day required the porters also by their courses at every gate, for so had David the man of God commanded. Notice this, in, this focus that there's Solomon establishing these things, carefully establishing them according to the appointment 
of David, inspired of God. Now notice in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, when Hezekiah is reforming the worship of God, which had corrupted itself over generations. What do we see stated? Notice interestingly, verse 25. He set, this is the king Hezekiah, set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer, that's prophet, and Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments, and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering when the, upon the altar, and when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained of David, king of Israel. When do the trumpets, when do the instrument gets played? They get played at the sacrifice. That's the biblical, redemptive, historical placement of instruments. And so when we see in Ezra, the reinstituting of the instruments, we know where we are biblically. We're in the Old Covenant. But under the New Covenant, we no longer offer the bloody sacrifices. We no longer have priests with vestments. We no longer observe holy days apart from the Lord's Day. We no longer have instruments in God's worship. We no longer have those things for they were part of the anticipation of the coming of Christ. The praise was to be set up according to His Word. And brethren, the same is to be today. That when we seek biblical reformation regarding God's praise, our only guide, our exclusive guide, our solitary guide must be the Scriptures, period. Not a book of church order. Not a historical survey of all the ways that the church has ever worshipped God. Think for a moment if Joshua and Cadmiel stood up and said, let's think about how our forefathers worshipped God. You know what they would have been doing? They would have been worshipping God as the uh, Baal worship prevailed. They would have worshipped God with the corruptions by the way which led them to be cast out of Jerusalem. But they've been taught and they learned the truths of God's Word. So they say, listen, The worship we're setting up is going to be governed by God's Word. And when we seek to set forth the praise of God in its purity, we seek to do so in accordance to His Word. The instruments particularly as a shadowy way holding forth the joy and the eruption of praise that ought to accompany the embracing of the sacrifices Oh, the blessing given to us by Christ. That when we hear Christ crucified, there should be an eruption of delightful praise to God. But according to the Word of God, which guides us in His house today. Notice then, lastly, the desire for this house. Here they enter into this ceremonial worship. And they praise God collectively as a people. You'll notice in verse 11 that one desire present is an overwhelming delight in the work of God. It's something for us to remember. The Old Testament is not only outward. They're erupting with praise, with gladness. Notice, They sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because He is good. And so on. They shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now brethren, there's something here for us to glean. They desire to see the whole temple built up. And they would give themselves to it. They desire to see the whole system established that God's Word teaches, and they would give themselves to it. But so soon as the foundation is established, they erupt with glad rejoicing. We ought not to let the incomplete work to detract from our 
complete joy in the Christ held forth in that work. The foundation is established. The priests and Levites are upon their work. The sacrifice is at hand. And there's this eruption of praise to God. And brethren, we can look and see many deficiencies all around us. But like Paul, where Christ is preached, we ought to rejoice. Like Paul, though some preach for wrong ends, when the Gospel is preached, we rejoice. There's one aspect of desire regarding this house. There's something of the beginning again of the manifestation of God's glory, of His grace, of His presence with us. And they've gotten, as it were, but a whiff of it, a scent of it, a little taste of it. And now they're gladdened by it. And they do indeed rejoice. And likewise should we. When we discover something more of Christ, something more of the revelation of God by and with His Word, when we see His house being ordered, not completely yet, but nonetheless ordered, we ought to take words of thanksgiving and praise to God and say, Oh, though it be not yet as it shall be, yet we praise God who is merciful and is at work among us today. Brethren, you'll also notice that there's a mixture. And not only is there a delight, but there is a sorrow that is acknowledged. It's interesting, because as these shout and sing, and notice those, verse 8, who were 20 years old and upward are before us, we read likewise of verse 12, of many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men. So this group has a point of reference. They saw the temple in its splendor. They remember the temple in its size and magnitude. They saw these things and they have something of comparison. Notice, they remembered that first house and when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice, though many shouted for joy. They had seen the first house. There seems to be a mixture of their weeping. Because you'll notice they're, they're weeping with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. And perhaps there's something that we can not fully resolve the tension, but they see the lack of what is and they long for something greater to the glory of God. But perhaps they're also weeping in the midst of shouting for joy because they see the beginnings of what is there, though it's small. Brethren, these affections are right for us regarding the church of Christ today. We aren't old enough, perhaps, to be able to say, I saw these high attainments of former generations. But books have this ability to convey us to points of history where we see, as it were, with our eyes, the attainments and strength and maturity of former generations. And so we read the lives of certain men and women. We read of certain eras of the church. And we sense in ourselves, oh God, how small things are today compared to the size of what things were then. And you know, brethren, it's right for us to mourn something. There's something that isn't now that once was. But there's also something for us to rejoice in. That there's something is now that once wasn't. The foundation for a season wasn't there. Oh, the rudiments of the former foundation were. But the stable foundation reestablished wasn't there. And now they see it. And though there's the contrast, oh, I remember the temple in its glory. And there's weeping, yet there's shouting for joy as well. Likewise, as we look at the church today, there will be cause for us to weep and cause for us to rejoice. Why? Not because of our names, our interest, our influence, but because we long to see the church in its strength showing forth the name of God. That's why. 
when we pray things in our congregation or in our households or uh, in, in isolation as individuals, and we're praying, Lord, uh, stir up your strength and might, return to this thy vine, advance thy cause, cause your kingdom to flourish. When we're praying that, we should pause for a moment and reflect, why do I want that? Why do I want to see godly men and godly women flourishing? Why do I want to see godly households established and thriving? Why do I want to see godly ministers and godly elders and godly deacons laboring in the church? Here's why. Because they show forth God's great praise. We long to see the praise of God multiplied. That's why we pray, God, give our church, this congregation, another elder. Because elders are a gift of Christ for what? The building up of the church of God. To mature her. To strengthen her. This is why we pray, God, raise up godly young men to serve as ministers, elders, and deacons. Because they're the means that men and women and children will be nurtured in Christ and built up. And when there's a healthy church, she as the bride of Christ with delightful deference is always looking at her beloved spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. She's always pointing to Him. You know, one of the ridiculous features of radical feminism today is this notion that a woman needs to make up her own identity outside of her husband. That's a wicked and corrupt thought from the very institution of marriage. God saw that Adam, it wasn't good that he be alone, so he made a help suitable for him. Paul makes much of this in his epistles. Here's the point. The wife finds something of her important identity bound up with her husband. She exists with delight to serve him. And this actually hurts us today. We think of that and say, oh, this is antiquated. This is outdated. This is ridiculous. You're just putting women as doormats and so on. Think of how the Scriptures talk about this. You know, speaking to believing women, there is the honoring of Sarah. Think of this language. Who called her husband Lord. If you heard a woman say that of her husband today, you'd be tempted to think she's out of her mind. That she's some sort of pushover and shoved down uh, no identifiable identity of her own. And it's also a corruption of the church. Does the church have to go out and find its own identity outside of the identity of her husband? Absolutely not. The church's identity is in her husband. The church's delight is in her husband. The church's praise is of her husband. That's all that she's interested in. That's all that she wants. And when women are told, you know what, go and find your own way, make up your own identity, get all these things together and go about and do it, there's actually a subtle entrance of the corruption of Christ in the church. And the church is unaware of this today. The radical feminism and its agenda is not an attack against the home only. It has its scope and focus upon something far superior. It has its focus upon ruining the witness of the church. And what's astounding is so-called biblical teachers think it's their God-given responsibility to support the feminine agenda. This feministic nonsense. Of course we don't want abusive husbands. We want husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church, who sees himself as one who serves his bride, to beautify his bride, to build up his bride, to lend strength to his bride, to care for his bride. We don't have any time for the nonsense of husbands sitting down and wasting their life and making, as it were, their wives to be their only slaves and so on. But just as we have no time for that, we have no time for women to have this false agenda cultivated as well. Here's the point. The church finds its identity in Christ Jesus. And we as the church have our sole focus on this agenda. 
I exist. This congregation exists. Our presbytery exists. Every church, congregation exists for the praise of Christ. And here's the question for you and for me to consider. Is He worthy of such an abandonment of our purpose? Is He worthy of such a focus of your purpose? Is He worthy that your whole life is ordered to show forth the glory of the name that has been placed upon you? Is there any unworthiness in Christ that should allow you so much as a second not being intentional about this? And the answer is absolutely not. He is nothing but worthy. He is altogether lovely. He is the fairest of all men. His love to us is overwhelming when it's open to us. His death on our behalf, His life for our life, all of what He is, all of what He does, it enraptures our soul with delight so that we say, He must increase. I must decrease. I live for Him. I love Him. That's my life. And brethren, when we have that desire governing us, all these other things will flow rightly. So what are we to do? Well, as we close, remember that you exist as God's temple. You exist to set forth the name of God. Christ is the Son, the Master of this house. And we exist to show forth His wisdom, to show forth His righteousness, to show forth His love, to show forth His mercy, to show forth His grace. We are to be decorated in such a way that we're always pointing out the beauties of Christ. Here then, brethren, is the charge. Show forth the praise of Christ. Individually, in your homes, in our congregation. For we exist for this purpose. And He who has called us has so provided us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our whole existence, rejoicing praising and serving His glorious name. Would you stand with me for prayer?